This is Chapter Eleven of Happy Homes and the Hearts That Make Them. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven, Energy and Will, read by John Greenman. Kites rise against, not with the wind. No man ever worked his passage anywhere in a dead calm. John Neal. There is a famous speech recorded of an old Norseman, thoroughly characteristic of the Teuton. I believe neither in idols nor demons, said he. I put my sole trust in my own strength of body and soul. Either I will find a way or make one, was an exposition of the same sturdy independence which to this day distinguishes the descendants of the Northmen. Indeed, nothing could be more characteristic of the scandinavian mythology than that it had a god with a hammer a man's character is seen in small matters and from even so slight a test as the mode in which a man wields a hammer his energy may in some measure be inferred thus an eminent frenchman hit off in a single phrase the characteristic quality of the inhabitants of a particular district in which a friend of his proposed to settle and buy beware said he of making a purchase there i know the men of that department the pupils who come from it to our veterinary school at paris do not strike hard upon the anvil they want energy and you will not get a satisfactory return on any capital you may invest there a fine and just appreciation of character indicating the thoughtful observer and strikingly illustrative of the fact that it is the energy of the individual men that gives strength to a state and confers a value even upon the very soil which they cultivate the cultivation of this quality is of the greatest importance resolute determination in the pursuit of worthy objects being the foundation of all true greatness of character energy enables a man to force his way through irksome drudgery and dry details and carries him onward and upward in every station in life it accomplishes more than genius with not one half the disappointment and peril it is not eminent talent that is required to ensure success in any pursuit so much as purpose not merely the power to achieve but the will to labor energetically and perseveringly hence energy of will may be defined to be the very central power of character in a man in a word it is the man himself it gives impulse to his very action and soul to every effort true hope is based on it and it is hope that gives the real perfume to life woe unto him that is faint-hearted says the son of sirach there is indeed no blessing equal to the possession of a stout heart even if a man fail in his efforts it will be a satisfaction to him to enjoy the consciousness of having done his best in humble life nothing can be more cheering and beautiful than to see a man combating suffering by patience triumphing in his integrity and who when his feet are bleeding and his limbs failing him still walks upon his courage when luther said to erasmus you desire to walk upon eggs without crushing them and among glasses 
without breaking them the timorous hesitating erasmus replied i will not be unfaithful to the cause of christ at least so far as the age will permit me luther was of a very different character i will go to worms though devils were combined against me as thick as the tiles upon the housetops nothing that is of real worth can be achieved without courageous working man owes his growth chiefly to that active striving of the will that encounter with difficulty which we call effort and it is astonishing to find how often results apparently impractical are thus made possible an intense anticipation itself transforms possibility into reality our desires being often but the precursors of the things which we are capable of performing on the contrary the timid and hesitating find everything impossible chiefly because it seems so it is related of a young french officer that he used to walk about his apartment exclaiming i will be marshal of france and a great general his ardent desire was the presentiment of his success for the young officer did become a distinguished commander and he died a marshal of france you are now at the age said laminet once addressing a gay youth at which a decision must be formed by you a little later and you may have to groan within the tomb which you yourself have dug without the power of rolling away the stone that which the easiest becomes a habit in us is the will learn then to will strongly and decisively thus fix your floating life and leave it no longer to be carried hither and thither like a withered leaf by every wind that blows buxton held the conviction that a young man might be very much what he pleased provided he formed a strong resolution and held to it writing to one of his sons he said to him you are now at that period of life in which you must make a turn to the right or to the left you must now give proofs of principle determination and strength of mind or you must sink into idleness and acquire the habits and character of a desultory ineffective young man and if once you fall to that point you will find it no easy matter to rise again i am sure that a young man may be very much what he pleases in my own case it was so much of my happiness and all my prosperity in life has resulted from the change i made at your age if you seriously resolve to be energetic and industrious depend upon it that you will for your whole life have reason to rejoice that you are wise enough to form and to act upon that determination as will considered without regard to direction is simply constancy firmness perseverance it will be obvious that everything depends upon right direction and motives directed towards the enjoyment of the senses the strong will may be a demon and the intellect merely its debased slave but directed towards good the strong will is a king and the intellect the minister of man's highest well-being where there is a will there is a way is an old and true saying he who resolves upon doing a thing by that very resolution often scales the barriers to it and secures its achievement to think we are able is almost to be so to determine upon attainment is frequently attainment itself thus 
earnest resolution has often seemed to have about it almost a savor of omnipotence the strength of suarau's character lay in his power of willing and like most resolute persons he preached it up as a system you can only half will he would say to people who failed like richelieu and napoleon he would have the word impossible banished from the dictionary i don't know i can't and impossible were words which he detested above all others learn do try he would exclaim his biographer has said of him that he furnished a remarkable illustration of what may be effected by the energetic development and exercise of faculties the germs of which at least are in every human heart one of napoleon's favorite maxims was the truest wisdom is a resolute determination his life beyond most others vividly showed what a powerful and unscrupulous will could accomplish he threw his whole force of body and mind direct upon his work imbecile rulers and the nations they governed went down before him in succession he was told that the alps stood in the way of his armies there shall be no alps he said and the road across the simplon was constructed through a district formerly almost inaccessible impossible said he is a word only to be found in the dictionary of fools he was a man who toiled terribly sometimes employing and exhausting four secretaries at a time he spared no one not even himself his influence inspired other men and put a new life into them i made my generals out of mud he said but all was of no avail for napoleon's intense selfishness was his ruin and the ruin of france which he left a prey to anarchy his life taught the lesson that power however energetically wielded without beneficence is fatal to its possessor and its subjects and that knowledge without goodness is but the incarnate principle of evil our own wellington was a far greater man not resolute firm and persistent but more self-denying conscientious and truly patriotic napoleon's aim was glory wellington's watchword like nelson's was duty the former word it is said does not once occur in his dispatches the latter often but never accompanied by any high-sounding professions the greatest difficulties could neither embarrass nor intimidate wellington his energy invariably rising in proportion to the obstacles to be surmounted the patience the firmness the resolution with which he bore through the maddening vexations and gigantic difficulties of the peninsular campaigns is perhaps one of the sublimest things to be found in history though his natural temper was irritable in the extreme his high sense of duty enabled him to restrain it and to those about him his patience seemed absolutely inexhaustible his great character stands untarnished by ambition avarice or any low passion though a man of powerful individuality he yet displayed a great variety of endowment the equal of napoleon in generalship he was as prompt vigorous and daring as clive as wise a statesman as cromwell and as pure and high-minded as washington 
the great wellington left behind him an enduring reputation founded on toilsome campaigns won by skillful combination by fortitude which nothing could exhaust by sublime daring and perhaps by still sublimer patience energy usually displays itself in promptitude and decision when ledyard the traveller was asked by the african association when he would be ready to set out for africa he immediately answered to-morrow morning blucher's promptitude obtained for him the cognomen of marshal forward throughout the prussian army when john jervis afterwards earl st vincent was asked when he would be ready to join his ship he replied directly and when sir colin campbell appointed to the command of the indian army was asked when he could set out his answer was to-morrow an earnest of his subsequent success for it is rapid decision and a similar promptitude in action such as taking instant advantage of an enemy's mistakes that so often wins battles at arcola said napoleon i won the battle with twenty-five horsemen i seized a moment of lassitude gave every man a trumpet and gained the day with this handful two armies are two bodies which meet and endeavor to frighten each other a moment of panic occurs and that moment must be turned to advantage every moment lost said he at another time gives an opportunity for misfortune and he declared that he beat the austrians because they never knew the value of time another great but sullied name is that of warren hastings a man of dauntless will and untiring industry his family was ancient and illustrious but their vicissitudes of fortune and ill-requited loyalty in the cause of the stuarts brought them to poverty and the family estate at dalesford of which they had been lords of the manor for hundreds of years at length passed from their hands the last hastings of dalesford had however presented the parish living to his second son and it was in his house many years later that warren hastings his grandson was born the boy learned his letters at the village school on the same bench with the children of the peasantry he played in the fields which his fathers had owned and what the loyal and brave hastings of dalesford had been was ever in the boy's thoughts his young ambition was fired and it is said that one summer's day when only seven years old as he laid him down on the bank of the stream which flowed through the domain he formed in his mind the resolution that he would yet recover possession of the family lands it was the romantic vision of a boy yet he lived to realize it the dream became a passion rooted in his very life and he pursued his determination through youth up to manhood with that calm but indomitable force of will which was the most striking peculiarity of his character the orphan boy became one of the most powerful men of his time he retrieved the fortunes of his line bought back the old estate and rebuilt the family mansion sir charles napier was another indian leader of extraordinary courage and determination he once said of the difficulties with which he was surrounded in one of his campaigns they only make my feet go deeper into the ground his battle of meany was one of the most extraordinary feats in history with two thousand men of whom only four hundred were europeans he encountered an army of thirty-five thousand hardy and well-armed 
Beluchis. It was an act, apparently, of the most daring temerity, but the general had faith in himself and in his men. He marched the Beluch center up a high bank which formed their rampart in front, and for three mortal hours the battle raged. Each man of that small force inspired by the chief became for the time a hero. The Beluchis, though twenty to one, were driven back, but with their faces to the foe. It is this sort of pluck, tenacity, and determined perseverance which wins soldiers' battles, and indeed every battle. It is the one neck nearer that wins the race that shows the blood. It is the one march more that wins the campaign, the five minutes more persistent courage that wins the fight. Though your force be less than another's, you equal and outmaster your opponent if you continue it longer and concentrate it more. The reply of the Spartan father who said to his son when complaining that his sword was too short, add a step to it, is applicable to everything in life. Napier took the right method of inspiring his men with his own heroic spirit. He worked as hard as any private in the ranks. The great art of commanding, he said, is to take a fair share of the work. The man who leads an army cannot succeed unless his whole mind is thrown into his work. The more trouble, the more labor must be given. The more danger, the more pluck must be shown, till all is overpowered. A young officer who accompanied him in his campaigns in the Kutchi Hills once said, When I see that old man incessantly on his horse, how can I be idle who am young and strong? I would go into a loaded cannon's mouth if he ordered me. This remark, when repeated to Napier, he said was ample reward for his toils. The anecdote of his interview with the Indian juggler strikingly illustrates his cool courage as well as his remarkable simplicity and honesty of character. On one occasion, after the Indian battles, a famous juggler visited the camp and performed his feats before the general, his family, and staff. Among other performances, this man cut in two with a stroke of his sword a lime or lemon placed in the hand of his assistant. Napier thought there was some collusion between the juggler and his retainer. To divide by a sweep of the sword on a man's hand so small an object without touching the flesh he believed to be impossible, though a similar incident is related by Scott in his Romance of the Talisman. To determine the point, the general offered his own hand for the experiment, and he stretched out his right arm. The juggler looked attentively at the hand and said he would not make the trial. I thought I would find you out, exclaimed Napier. But stop, added the other. Let me see your left hand. The left hand was submitted, and the man then said firmly, If you hold your arm steady, I will perform the feat. But why the left hand and not the right? because the right is hollow to the center, and there is a risk of cutting off the thumb. The left is high, and the danger will be less. Napier was startled. I got frightened, he said. I saw it was an actual feat of delicate swordsmanship, and if I had not abused the man as I did before my staff, and challenged him to the trial, I honestly acknowledge I would have retired from the encounter. However, I put the lime on my hand and held out my arm steadily. The juggler balanced himself, and with a swift stroke cut the lime in two pieces. 
I felt the edge of the sword on my hand as if a cold thread had been drawn across it. So much she added for the brave swordsmen of India, whom our fine fellows defeated at Miani. Patriotism and nobility culminate in the life of Washington, the leader and deliverer of his country. He was one of the greatest men of the eighteenth century, not so much by his genius as by his purity and trustworthiness. His English descent was a goodly heritage. He came from an Anglican stock settled in the county of Durham. From thence his ancestors emigrated to America and settled in Virginia about year 1657. The character of George Washington was such that, at an early age, he was appointed to positions of great trust and confidence. At the age of nineteen he was appointed one of the adjutants general of Virginia, with the rank of major, nor did he ever deceive those who put trust in him. He was ever prompt, obedient, and dutiful. At the age of twenty-three he was appointed colonel and commander-in-chief of all the forces raised in Virginia for cooperation with the English troops in the defense of the western territory against the French. He was trained not only in success, but in failure, which evoked his indomitable spirit. No man could be more pure, no man could be more self-denying. In victory he was self-controlled, in defeat he was unshaken. Throughout he was magnanimous and pure. In General Washington it is difficult to know which to admire the most, the nobility of his character, the ardor of his patriotism, or the purity of his conduct. Toward the close of his address to the governors of the several states, on resigning his position of commander-in-chief, he said, I make it my constant prayer that God would have you and the state over which you preside in his holy protection, that he would incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to government, to entertain a brotherly affection and love for one another, for their fellow-citizens of the United States at large, and particularly for their brethren who have served in the field, and finally that he would most graciously be pleased to dispose us all to do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and pacific temper of mind which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion, without a humble imitation of whose example in these things we can never hope to be a happy nation. How simple, truthful, and beautiful are the words of Washington! It is not the size of a country, but the character of its people that gives it sterling value. We find men constantly calling for liberty, but who do nothing to deserve it. They remain inert, lazy, and selfish. There is a so-called patriotism that has no more dignity in it than the howling of wolves true patriotism is of another sort it is based on honesty truthfulness generosity self-sacrifice and genuine love of freedom look for instance at the little republic of switzerland which has been hemmed in by tyrannical governments for hundreds of years but the people are brave and frugal honest and self-helping they would have no master but governed themselves they elected their representatives as at appenzell by show of hands in the public market-places they proclaimed liberty of conscience and switzerland like england 
has always been the refuge of the persecuted for conscience' sake. It was not without severe struggles that Switzerland conquered its independence. The leaders of these brave men have often sacrificed themselves for the good of their country. Take, for instance, the example of Arnold von Winkelried. In 1481, the Austrians invaded Switzerland, and a comparatively small number of men determined to resist them. Near the little town of Sempach, the Austrians were observed advancing in a solid, compact body, presenting an unbroken line of spears. The Swiss met them, but their spears were shorter, and being much fewer in number, they were compelled to give way. Observing this, Arnold von Winkelried, seeing that all the efforts of the Swiss to break the ranks of their enemy had failed, exclaimed to his countrymen, I will open a path to freedom. Protect, dear comrades, my wife and children. He rushed forward, and gathering in his arms as many spears as he could grasp, he buried them in his bosom. He fell, but a gap was made, and the Swiss rushed in, and achieved an exceeding great victory. Arnold von Winkelried died, but saved his country. The little mountain republic preserved its liberty. The battle took place on the ninth of July, and to this day the people of the country assembled to celebrate their deliverance from the Austrians through the self-sacrifice of their leader. The career of Dr. Livingston is one of the most interesting. His ancestors were poor but honest Highlanders, and it is related of one of them, renowned in his district for wisdom and prudence, that when, on his deathbed, he called his children around him and left them these words, the only legacy he had to bequeath. In my lifetime, said he, I have searched most carefully through all the traditions I could find of our family, and I never could discover that there was a dishonest man among our forefathers. If, therefore, any of you or any of your children should take to dishonest ways, it will not be because it runs in our blood. It does not belong to you. I leave this precept with you. Be honest. At the age of ten, Livingston was sent to work in a cotton factory near Glasgow as a piecer. With part of his first week's wages he bought a Latin grammar, and began to learn that language, pursuing the study for years at a night school. He would sit up, conning his lessons till twelve or later, when not sent to bed by his mother, for he had to be up and at work in the factory every morning by six. In this way he plodded through Virgil and Horace, also reading extensively all books, excepting novels, that came in his way, but more especially scientific works and books of travels. He occupied his spare hours, which were but few, in the pursuit of botany, scouring the neighborhood to collect plants. He even carried on his reading amidst the roar of the factory machinery, so placing the book upon the spinny jenny which he worked, that he could catch sentence after sentence as he passed it. In this way the persevering youth acquired much youthful knowledge, and as he grew older the desire possessed him of becoming a missionary to the heathen. With this object he set himself to obtain a medical education, in order the better to be qualified for the work. He accordingly economized his earnings, and saved as much money as enabled him to support himself while attending the medical and Greek classes, as well as the divinity lectures at Glasgow, for several winters, working as a cotton spinner during the remainder of each year. 
he thus supported himself during his college career entirely by his own earnings as a factory workman never having received a farthing of help from any source looking back now he honestly says at that life of toil i cannot but feel thankful that it formed such a material part of my early education and were it possible i should like to begin life over again in the same lowly style and to pass through the same hardy training at first he thought of going to china but the war then waging with that country prevented his following out the idea and having offered his services to the london missionary society he was by them sent out to africa which he reached in eighteen forty he had intended to proceed to china by his own efforts and he says the only pang he had in going to africa at the charge of the london missionary society was because it was not quite agreeable to one accustomed to work his own way to become in a manner dependent upon others arrived in africa he set to work with great zeal he could not brook the idea of merely entering upon the labors of others but cut out a large sphere of independent work preparing himself for it by undertaking manual labor in building and other handicraft employment in addition to teaching which he says made me generally as much exhausted and unfit for study in the evenings as ever i had been when a cotton spinner whilst laboring amongst the bequanas he dug canals built houses cultivated fields reared cattle and taught the natives to work as well as worship john howard was another of the many patient and persevering men who have made england what it is content simply to do with energy the work they have been appointed to do and to go to their rest thankfully when it is done leaving no memorial but a world made better by their lives his sublime life proved that even physical weakness could remove mountains in the pursuit of an end recommended by duty the idea of ameliorating the condition of prisoners engrossed his whole thoughts and possessed him like a passion and no toil no danger no bodily suffering could turn him from that great object of his life though a man of no genius and but moderate talent his heart was pure and his will was strong even in his own time he achieved a remarkable degree of success and his influence did not die with him for it has continued powerfully to affect not only the legislation of england but of all civilized nations down to the present hour andrew marvell was a patriot of the old roman build he lived in troublous times he was born at hull at the beginning of the reign of charles i when a young man he spent four years at trinity college cambridge he afterwards travelled through europe in italy he met milton and continued his friend through life on his return to england the civil war was raging it does not appear that he took any part in the struggle though he was always a defender and promoter of liberty in sixteen sixty he was elected member of parliament for his native town and during his membership he wrote to the mayor and his constituents by almost every post telling them of the course of affairs in parliament marvell did not sympathize with milton's anti-monarchical tendencies his biographer styles him the friend of england liberty and magna carta he had no objections to a properly restricted monarchy and therefore favored the restoration 
the people longed for it believing that the return of charles the second would prove the restoration of peace and loyalty they were much mistaken marvel was appointed to accompany lord carlisle on an embassy to russia showing that he was not reckoned an enemy to the court during his absence much evil had been done the restored king was constantly in want of money he took every method by selling places and instituting monopolies to supply his perpetual need in one of marvel's letters to his constituents he said the court is at the highest pitch of want and luxury and the people are full of discontent the king continued to raise money unscrupulously by means of his courtiers and apostate patriots he bought them up by bribes of thousands of pounds but marvel was not to be bought his satires upon the court and its parasites were published they were read by all classes from the king to the tradesman the king determined to win him over he was threatened he was flattered he was thwarted he was caressed he was beset with spies he was waylaid by ruffians and courted by beauties but no delilah could discover the secret of his strength his integrity was proof alike against danger and against corruption against threats and bribes pride is the ally of principle in a court which held no man to be honest and no woman chaste this soft sorcery was cultivated to perfection but marvel revering and respecting himself was proof against its charms it has been said that lord treasurer danby thinking to buy over his old schoolfellow called upon marvel in his garret at parting the lord treasurer slipped into his hand an order on the treasury for five thousand dollars and then went to his chariot marvel looking at the paper calls after the treasurer my lord i request another moment they went up again to the garret and jack the servant boy was called jack child what had i for dinner yesterday don't you remember sir you had the little shoulder of mutton that you ordered me to bring from a woman in the market very right child what have i for dinner to-day don't you know sir that you bid me lay by the blade bone to broil tis so very right child go away my lord said marvel turning to the treasurer do you hear that andrew marvel's dinner is provided there's your piece of paper i want it not i knew the sort of kindness you intended i live here to serve my constituents the ministry may seek men for their purpose i am not one buxton was a dull heavy boy distinguished for his strong self-will which first exhibited itself in violent domineering and headstrong obstinacy his father died when he was a child but fortunately he had a wise mother who trained his will with great care constraining him to obey but encouraging the habit of deciding and acting for himself in matters which might safely be left to him his mother believed that a strong will directed upon worthy objects was a valuable manly quality if properly guided and she acted accordingly when others about her commented on the boy's self-will she would merely say never mind he is self-willed now you will see it will turn out well in the end Fowle learned very little at school and was regarded as a dunce and an idler he got other boys to do his exercises for him while he romped and scrambled about 
he returned home at fifteen a great growing awkward lad fond only of boating shooting riding and field sports spending his time principally with the gamekeeper a man possessed of a good heart an intelligent observer of life and nature though he could neither read nor write buxton had excellent raw material in him but he wanted culture training and development at this juncture of his life when his habits were being formed for good or evil he was happily thrown into the society of the gurney family distinguished for their fine social qualities not less than for their intellectual culture and public-spirited philanthropy this intercourse with the gurneys he used afterwards to say gave the coloring to his life they encouraged his efforts at self-culture and when he went to the university of dublin and gained high honors there the animating passion in his mind he said was to carry back to them the prizes which they prompted and enabled him to win he married one of the daughters of the family and started in life commencing as a clerk his power of will which made him so difficult to deal with as a boy now formed the backbone of his character and made him most industrious and energetic in whatever he undertook he threw his whole strength and bulk right down upon his work and the great giant elephant buxton they called him for he stood some six feet four in height became one of the most vigorous and practical of men there was invincible energy and determination in whatever he did admitted a partner he became the active manager of the concern and the vast business which he conducted felt his influence through every fibre and prospered far beyond its previous success nor did he allow his mind to lie fallow for he gave his evenings diligently to self-culture studying and digesting blackstone montesquieu and solid commentaries on english law his maxims in reading were never to begin a book without finishing it never to consider a book finished until it is mastered and to study everything with the whole mind when only thirty-two buxton entered parliament and at once assumed that position of influence there of which every honest earnest well-informed man is secure who enters that assembly buxton was no genius not a great intellectual leader nor discoverer but mainly an earnest straightforward resolute energetic man indeed his whole character is most forcibly expressed in his own words which every young man might well stamp upon his soul the longer i live said he the more i am certain that the great difference between men between the feeble and the powerful the great and the insignificant is energy invincible determination a purpose once fixed and then death or victory that quality will do anything that can be done in this world and no talents no circumstances no opportunities will make a two-legged creature a man without it end of chapter eleven energy and will read by john greenman